Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Jack, and at this week's Roundtable, Inika, Madeline, and I spoke with Raj Venkota, president of the Institutes for Citizens and Scholars. Raj has dedicated his career to educating, empowering, and supporting America the youth, particularly those from disadvantaged communities. Did you know that the United States spends, on average, just five cents per student in civics versus an average $50 per student in STEM? Compound that over four years and you can better understand the civic catastrophe that we've been living through. A few years back, fueled by concerns about the state of our country, Raj led a national study focused on rethinking civic education, supported by funders across the ideological spectrum. A core conclusion of the report is that developing citizens is much broader than anything that can be taught within the typical senior elective. Schools can't do it all. This is a societal responsibility, and to equip youth for the changes and opportunities of the 21st century, we must tap into all the places citizenship can be developed. This informs the Institute for Citizens and Scholars' mission to ensure that a majority of young people become effective citizens who are well-informed about civic issues, productively engaged for the common good, and hopeful about the future of democracy. We couldn't endorse this mission more and hope you feel the same. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Inika Kodestane, and I'm a high school senior from New Jersey. And in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also the co-editor-in-chief of the Next Generation Politics blog. And today I'm really interested in talking about how Asian, especially with high school and, and college students, can really be used to strengthen democracy, to change ideas of democracy, and, and to make sure that the next generation is prepared to handle and, and cultivate what should be our government in the future. Hi, everybody. My name is Jack. I'm a high school junior going to school in Manhattan. I've been with NextGen for about a year now. I started with a civic action project where we conducted a survey to see where freedom of expression stood in the classrooms of New York City, both public and private high schools. And then I've been on the podcast for maybe eight months or so. And so today I'm really interested to hear about sort of how we can think about higher education as the stepping way into active participation in democracy. And I think that that doesn't necessarily have to be the blueprint, right? You can participate actively in civics with a high school education, ideally. But I think that it's interesting to think about higher education and sort of other ways of forming a little bit more of a nuanced approach. And so I'm really interested to discuss that today. Hi, everyone. My name is Madeline Mays, and I'm a high school junior from Brooklyn, New York. And I'm really excited today to learn about the Institute of uh, Citizens and Scholars and about the Seed Foundation. Just reading into your bio, this seems like two really great organizations that I'm excited to hear about because it particularly sounds like something that NGP kids would be interested in knowing about. And so I'm sure that it would certainly appeal to um, our audience as well. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. I'll, I'll pass it over to you now. Good afternoon. I'm Raj Vinokoda, and I'm president at the Institute for Citizens and Scholars, uh, formerly known as the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. So interestingly enough, I come to this work as uh, by training as a molecular biologist. Uh, and after I graduated from college and went into management consulting for a few years, I decided I did not want to go into medicine or medical research. And so came up with a crazy idea of starting the nation's first urban public boarding school. And so I left my consulting job uh, at age 25, found a business partner, and in 1997, opened the Seed School of Washington, D.C., which started with 40 students in grade 6 through 12, where we had them living with us from Sunday night through Friday afternoon. 
Over the course of the next 18 years, I was CEO of the organization as we grew that school to 350 students and then added a second school in Baltimore of 400 students and three and a third school in Miami of 325 students. Um, after 18 years of leading that organization, I then went to the Aspen Institute where uh, I worked for three years uh, for a spectacular boss, Walter Isaacson, where we started a third operating division focused on working directly with young people. And part of the fun of that work was that I got to actually define what we would do. And we decided that we would focus on how do you develop civic virtue in young people? How do you get them to take the interests of their communities equal to or above their own personal desires? And I did that for three years, left in 2018, uh, partly because I was worried that the house was on fire, um, that our democracy really needed all of us to engage as directly and as quickly as possible in whatever way we needed to do it. And so I ended up in late 2018 syndicating a national study to rethink civic education in this country. And there were three funders for that project. They were the Hewlett Foundation, Michael Bloomberg, and Charles Koch which is the first time that those three funders had come together on a joint project of this size. But that's because they'd all been involved in civic education funding. And clearly when they were looking at the outcomes outside of their windows, it really wasn't translating into what they wanted to see. And so I led this national project in 2019 to think about that. And I have a whole paper that we'd be glad to link to, uh, but at its core, the salient nut here is that when we think about civic education, too often, we focus narrowly or myopically on what happens in that junior year high school class that we all call civics or government. And unfortunately, that's only a tiny part of what we're actually trying to do, because what we're really trying to do is develop citizens. And developing citizens is a much broader concept. And part of my study talks about the fact that if you're really looking at that, you need to think about what happens in your homes, in your community, at your first job online and in higher education and also in the k-12 school system and if you don't look at all of those other parts of the work you frankly seed all of the parts where you can make a tremendous impact on how we think about developing into citizens and so it was during my leadership of that work that i ended up also becoming president in july 2019 of the woodrow wilson national fellowship foundation and brought all of this work with me expanded the mission of that organization and now we focus as an institution around reprioritizing citizen development in this country. And that's the work that I lead now at CNS. I have to just start by saying, wow, that <laughs> is an incredible resume. And that work that you do is so empowering um, and definitely so inspiring. As you were telling us about that, it made me think about recently, I sat with my guidance counselor and I chose my classes for next year. And I was particularly enthusiastic about taking AP Gov next year, uh -huh. um, sure. <laughs> which seems to be like just a class that like, oh, if you're an honors kid or you get high grades, you're just automatically placed into the AP Gov class. But I was thinking about it a lot recently and how it's technically supposed to be half a year of government and half a year of economics, but we kind of just sweep economics under the rug, doesn't really get touched upon, just focus on government the whole year. And I've been talking to my peers that are seniors at the time about the, their experience in this class that they take, and they describe it as just an easy class, good AP to have, 
good way to skim by looks good on college resumes. You don't have to do much. Just make sure you memorize all of your court cases and your amendments properly and you'll be fine. And as interesting as that is, it's really, really disheartening because it doesn't really feel like we're going much below the surface level of what it means, like you said, to be a citizen in our country. And so just as you were talking about that, uh, it was just reminded of that. And I'm wondering, like, what does it actually mean to learn how to be a citizen in our country? I feel like it's something that's so complex that can't necessarily just be taught in schools, but through experiences. And unfortunately, not everyone has the opportunity to have those experiences that teach them to be good citizens. So it's a big question, but how do you even teach that? And I'm sure you have experience with all of the um, teaching that you have been in relation to. You know, that that is a great question because how you even approach this concept of citizen development really ends up setting the first few steps of that journey, right? And so a lot of my work that I did in that white paper was about working towards what I would call a consensus definition of what do we actually mean when we say, you know, initially we called it civic education, but then I expand to say, no, no, but this is really citizen development. And we were able to, with a group of 40 foundations, actually get to a general understanding of what that entails. And so let me actually take you through it now. And there's really three major buckets to it, right? The first is that you have to be civically well-informed. And what does that mean? Well, that means understanding how your government functions, right? That's a little bit of what you're working on now but also understanding the historical underpinnings. How did we get here? What were the decisions that we made over the last 250 plus years that actually made our uh, institutions function the way that they did? Being civically well-informed also means that you should be getting your information from diverse sources and multiple sources. And then finally, it's also about being social media and media literate, right? So that's one big box that we're talking about. The second box is about being productively engaged, right? And Madeline, this talks a little bit to your experiential portions of this. So for example, certainly we have voting under there, right? But that's necessary, but not sufficient. It's also, how do you engage in your community? And that could be as an individual, right? I'll go mentor or I'll go volunteer, or it could be as part of an association, right? I'm part of, you know, boys and girls clubs, I'm part of this uh, association or that organization. And then finally, it's how do you engage in civil discourse, right? That's larger than 280 characters at a time. Like, how do you actually work across difference and come together? So that's the second big box. The third big box is about how are you hopeful about democracy in America? And that conception only, it includes a, like, how are you optim, or are you optimistic about the direction of our country and how we function? But it also includes an aspect of trust. Do you trust your government and your institutions? And then do you trust your neighbor and your community? So that's a fairly broad definition, but at the same time, it's actually fairly concrete too, right? You can get your head around all of those conceptions. And so the first thing that you realize when you think about all that is it's really unfair to ask your AP government class to do all of that at once, right? So, but you also start to recognize what you said earlier. Schools can't do all of this, nor have they ever been expected to do all of this. So it really is a societal responsibility. And that's one of the things I push is you can't just say, oh, no, that one institution or that one lever is going to actually be able to solve this challenge. You have to think about it as a societal approach. Does that does that comport, Madeline, more of like how you think about this? I I think it definitely does. And 
I think a societal change in that is a really big undertaking. Um, but I really think that we do have the ability to get there. Um, it's taking a while, I feel like, for as a, a, as a society, uh, realizing that um, civic education means all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think with this new generation that's ac- actively more involved in being good citizens and being engaged in our communities, I definitely see that happening soon. Yeah. The, you know, part of it is also we've so underinvested in the space for the last 40 to 50 years. So as I mentioned earlier, I was part of the education reform movement, you know, starting in the mid nineties. And one of the things that we really focused on was where could we drive accountability, right? Which really meant about measurement and knowing what you could measure and whether or not you were successful. And so that, that basically led all of us to over-focus on math and ELA, right? English language. And we did that. And then about 15 years ago, we suddenly said, holy cow, all the jobs are going to be in the STEM sciences. So we started investing really heavily in STEM. And every time that happened, social studies and civics kept falling further and further behind. Not because any people said, oh my gosh, that's got to be the least important, but rather because we prioritized other things. Literally to the point where in the 2019 federal government budget, we invested $50 per student in that year for everything related to STEM, curriculum, professional development, research, and so on. And we only invested five cents per student in social studies and civics. That's a 1,000x difference, right? And you all know interest and compounding. You do that over 40 years. Guess what happens to your emphasis and your ability to be successful around these things? And we really need to turn that around. I think that thinking about turning that around is really one of the most important things because it seems like we have a pretty good idea of what the problem is. I think that definition you provided is really strong. Um, And I think also it's sort of generally recognized there are really two things agreed upon by Americans. First, like China is is a rising world power, which I think is is a more debatable one. But I think the second, much more truthful and easily arrived at conclusion is that America is in a really bad place right now. And so I wonder, what does that look like turning it around? Obviously, we should be funding civic education in schools more, right? Like, you, you know, that statistic you mentioned of five cents versus $50 is insane. But is there another way, especially coming out of the pandemic and, and, in the climate of like extreme political polarization that we see right now, how do we turn the ship around? Because I was thinking about, you know, your definition has three pillars. And if we take Mm -hmm. like associations, the pandemic for the last two years has systematically been destroying every association literally in the country. You know, we talk about being well-informed. Social media has been creating echo chambers for the last five to 10 years that have been systematically destroying people's information gathering practices. The pandemic again and decreasing civil norms have led us to a place where we really struggle to communicate efficiently in any media, but it is especially so over social media, which is increasingly the way we do it. So outside of like a school or outside of like youth, is there hope really for like the adults in the room? Are we just sort of saying, oh, well, like you missed your chance or where do you think we can go from there to sort of bring back that definition of what it means to be a citizen? So let, let's, for a moment, split that question into two pieces. I mean, you could question, you could split it in a hundred pieces, right? But let's at least start to do that, right? So one is the youth aspect to it, and what can you do there? And I think I'd be lying to you if I said I have the answer, right? But what I can tell you is there are certain things we're trying to do to really move what I would say the dashboard or the signal, right, at the national level, and they are things like, to your point, let's leverage the virtual environment that we've created to bring 
the best civic skills and civic disposition content that's out there and actually digitize it and gamify it. And we're in the process of doing that with a couple of different partners and putting it up on a platform that looks somewhat like Netflix and that will be giving the teachers, giving the librarians, giving the after school providers so that they can assign specific parts of it. It's largely asynchronous. So you can go home and work on it. Some of it is group work and so on. And you can bring it back and actually reflect on pretty powerful things that have already been developed by organizations you've already heard of, right? So it's not, let's reinvent the wheel. Let's digitize it and make it more accessible. Similarly, I told you earlier about this work I'm doing with higher education presidents about how we reclaim that space for deep and thoughtful civil discourse in our colleges and universities so that we can model and have people experience what it means to actually engage in that in the way that, frankly, like you said, Jack, social media doesn't allow you to do. And there's a few other thoughts around that that I can talk about. So there are ways to leverage some of the things that have happened to try to move as quickly as possible. But I'd also like to get to the second part, right, which is this portion that you talk about, like, can you really even believe or hope? And I can tell you on a personal level, I can. And I can because uh, after living for 25 years in Washington, D.C., three years ago, I moved to Maine. And I now live in a town of 8,000 people, about a half hour north of Portland, Maine, that is very diverse ideologically and economically. And I get to interact with people every day who do not think like me, who do not have the same lived experiences as me. And yet we all send our children to that one middle school and one high school in town. And we have to all come together in a communitarian way to vote and pass our local school budget and to pass the local town budget. So there are ways when you really think about this on an individual level where you start to get the humanity back. It's really hard to think the same way about Congress, for example, right? But you can think about it in terms of your shared humanity and connections that you have in daily life. The question becomes, how do you, frankly, scale that, right? And I don't have the answer, but I can tell you that I get my hope and optimism from having day-to-day interactions with people who are very unlike me and yet recognizing that we do share more than we disagree. So actually, I was going to ask pretty much, how do you scale that? And I I think I got my answer. But I I think it's interesting how you talk about like individual and community connection in being like the most impactful way to get people to understand how they can participate civically in their communities. And I was wondering, you know, maybe if you don't know how to scale it, how do you sort of propose that there is change that can be made in the local, state, national levels and that allow people to to harness that power per se, or understand that what they do in their communities can be implemented elsewhere as well. So it's really interesting, right? Because at its core, I think what you're asking me is get people to have faith, right? That they can do things uh, so that it then leads to the kinds of skills that you want to develop in people, you know, and (laughs) excuse me, I would almost turn the question back to you, right? The three of you have some level of faith that this will all work. You wouldn't be working with Sanda if you didn't believe that. And I'd love to know your answers. I will tell you that when we talk to young people, there are two things that at least seem to motivate them the most. One is a sense of what I would call generational purpose around big issues, right? Democracy is one of them. The other one, not surprisingly, is climate change. And what can we take on, not we, but what you can take on 
in a concerted effort to be able to, to really address these issues in a way that actually will make some change. And so I do know that you can motivate your generation when it comes to thinking about these big issues. And you can say, well, you know what? Start locally. So you can do that in one way. The second part that I know is there is nothing that builds trust better than doing work together. And so figuring out mechanisms by which we can create competitions or, you know, fun competitions, not winners and losers, but how can you actually engage on this and start with work with people who are different from you really ends up breaking barriers and building trust that then generates the willingness to do a little more work and to build your skills and builds more trust and so on and so forth. That flywheel really starts to move. And so you have to start as small and discreetly as possible so that people start to believe. So let me actually now turn the the question around to the three of you, because I'd love to hear like, what makes you have the faith and hope that involves you in this work? At least for me, part of it is there's nothing really else to do. And this sounds incredibly pessimistic. I think our generation is very cynical. I think that we sort of feel like we're being royally screwed over in everything from respects to environmental, to fiscal, to foreign relations, to everything. I think that just as a generation, we're pretty downy about the mm -hmm. world we're inheriting. Like we have to keep trying because like there's no alternative. Like the alternative is like, oh, well, we just let society collapse. And, and you know, I want to obviously put the caveat on this. From my experiences, when I've been in really close community with other people, when I've been locally engaged, when I've been engaged with other people, wherever that might be, whether that's through school or an extracurricular or something else, that has really brought sort of the understanding and the, the motivation to make change and to be productive. And so I think that that sort of trying to be in community and be in conversation with people is like the more optimistic way to read the situation. And so I think that it's, it's, a, it's a renewal yeah. of hope. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, I like Jack, I, I guess it's a generational thing. Like he said, like I can be cynical at times, but I think of myself as a mostly optimistic person. And for me, I think that the reason why I'm so passionate about this is that I've seen it work and I've seen people come together and have meaningful dialogue and it's possible. It's attainable. I think so often we get locked in the headspace that politics is about shouting at each other and civic engagement just means showing up one day at our local voting sites and then staying indoors for the rest of the year and not doing anything else. That's what politics seems on the surface level. But politics is something that's so heavily involved in all aspects of our daily lives that we don't even realize it. Whether it's just a simple conversation with a friend about some issue that's going on, or even something simple uh, that's just a conversation with someone. It's, as a society, we have the ability to have meaningful conversations. And right now, for instance, yeah. uh, I'm working with NGP to, we're organizing a focus group about the state of freedom of expressions in high schools. That'll be in a, a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And we're bringing kids together to actually hear what they have to say about how much they think their voice is being heard. And that's something that's really that we do on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. It's something we, we do on a daily basis, too. And we don't even realize it, whether it's just, oh, I wish this teacher would listen to me more or something like that. 
um, we don't even realize it, but we're having this meaningful dialogue. And if we just realize that, hey, what we're actually doing is civic engagement, Mm -hmm. then I think it'll make youth realize that this is something that they're passionate about because everyone already is without even realizing it. Um, So that makes me excited about how youth is going to be involved in their communities in a larger context in their hopefully near futures. So I think the work that I do is to just make sure that youth realizes that civic engagement is already something that they've started. They just need Mm -hmm. to acknowledge it within themselves. Great point. So I can kind of tie this back. In sixth grade, I had something that could be considered a YouTube addiction. And I used to watch these videos um, by this one channel. I think it was called Jubilee. And basically, they make these videos where they have like people from like completely opposite beliefs. And then they put them in a room and have them talk about something. So they would range on like different issues. Like sometimes it'd be like, younger people and older people talking about social media or like conservatives and liberals talking about like abortion. And it'd be like a wide range of topics and they'd be so interesting to watch because they're like a solid, maybe like 15, 20 minutes, good enough time to procrastinate on whatever math homework I didn't want to do. And you get to see these people interact in a space where they are directly engaging with someone that has like an opposite view of them, but Mm -hmm. they can't just argue about their side and leave. They're actually forced to understand the other's perspective. And I think that's kind of a very small, but significant example of what like civic discourse is. It's when you don't just say your opinion, but you understand the other person's opinion. And I feel like that's a very, it, it should be attainable. Like it's a very simple thing. Like you don't just, yell at someone you try to understand their perspective as well it's something that we're told about maybe in elementary school or something but it's not very much implemented when you get older I think especially in politics or like in any social issue so I think like the core of why I do this kind of work is because you know it's right there like we all know how to do it we all know how to empathize and we all know how to understand someone else's opinion and and take it into consideration when we're making our own decisions. It's not impossible. It's just that we are not necessarily, I wouldn't say given, but we're not encouraged to use resources, encouraged to be in those spaces because we want to avoid conflict. Or when we do have conflict, it needs to be something that's on the news or like on TV and something that's very sensationalized and you can make a hashtag out of it. So I think when you have like, that space where you're just there to have dialogue, where you're just there to discuss, that's when you can really get to the core of civic engagement and understanding someone else. It's just a matter of getting people there and understanding that that in itself is a way to make change. You don't just need to, you know, have some kind of fight about it in order to make progress. You know, the the writer uh, Atlantic Monthly uh, reporter, uh, Amanda Ripley, talks in her book how one of the most important things that we can do is to complicate the narrative, right? That what we need to do, right? You can't be simplistic or kind of hashtaggy. You actually need to complicate that narrative to really understand each other and to dive into the depths of that. So, so that makes sense to me. Jack, I will tell you, and you know, I guess this is public, so uh, because I'm about to say it publicly, but uh, I, I would not usually thank Vladimir Putin, but uh, he has helped in this just awful sort of way point out 
exactly what the choices are for a democracy versus autocracy. The Ukrainians have pointed us to us what it really means to be a citizen, right? To, to fight for a country, an ideal, uh, a type of government representation. Uh, it's horrific. I wish not a single thing was going on, but it's providing us with an unfortunate, tangible and concrete view to your point, like, yeah, if not democracy, what, right? What, what's, what's the other alternative? Um, and so it is staring us in the face and it requires us all to make, uh, uh, hopefully not the sacrifices that Ukrainians are making, but the kind of sacrifices for the common good. That's all for today with Next Generation Politics. I'm editor Vanessa Chen signing off. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org podcast for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded.